contact, making, 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 making contact. Welcome to Making Contact. I'm Monica Lopez. This week, we've got a story from our interim executive director, Jessica Partnow. She did a reporting project in Ukraine, Russia, Georgia, and Kazakhstan back in 2012, just about 10 years ago. It was a time of big anti-Putin protests in Moscow. And as it turns out, she was there to capture kind of a rare moment of hope in many post-Soviet countries. For this week's show, we asked her to share some of that reporting from 2012 and to check in to see how things have changed over the past 10 years. Jessica, welcome to the show. What's the situation right now for Ukrainians? Thanks so much for having me on, Monica. As we're recording here in the middle of March, two and a half million people have left Ukraine as refugees. The majority are going to Poland, and it's mostly women and children who've left because men over 18 have to stay and fight. And it's been really interesting to watch the way the West has been talking about this war. I can tell you for eight years, sometimes uh, people ask, where is it? Where is Ukraine? What is it? And stuff. Now everybody knows, you know. And I was always like people, you have Google. Google it up, read. Now nobody asks. That's Anna Perogova. I met her in Ukraine in 2012, but she moved to the U.S. about eight years ago. I'm from Ukraine. My family is in Ukraine. But my daughter and me, were living here. We love this country, but we love our country where it came from. So I wish everybody to live in peace. Anna told me that pretty much everyone she knows, Americans and Ukrainians, are constantly calling and messaging her, wanting to know what's going on. She's barely slept since the invasion began. And I think just like all of us, she's glued to the news and trying to make sense of what's happening. It's such a scary time. And she said it's really hard to be far away from her family and friends while this is happening. But before we get into my conversation with Anna, I wanted to first share the story of how we met. Um, and that was actually because her brother, Alexander, or Sasha, was my childhood pen pal. So let's listen to that story from 2012. When I was nine years old, in 1990, I was in one of those hippie peace activist schools that decided I should have a Soviet pen pal. My pen pal was Sasha. Dear Jessica, I've gotten your letter of February 25th. Thank you very much for your photo. I guess I was into it. I don't remember that much. I do remember expecting descriptions of breadlines and secret police. I was surprised by what an idyllic life Sasha seemed to have. Sometimes I go fishing. My hobbies are music. I play the accordion every day. Do you like music? Sasha's letters came in those old blue and red airmail envelopes. Sarah and I tracked one down in my parents' garage. Lennon Street, flat 24. Oh, Lennon Street. That should narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> this Lennon Street turned out to be in a little city in Ukraine, a few hours outside of Kiev. In Ukraine, unemployment is high, and corruption is part of everyday life. Back in 2004, Ukraine had the Orange Revolution in response to all this. But after a couple of exciting years, many say it's as if the revolution never happened. Now that I had Sasha's address, I decided to go try and find him. I knew it was probably crazy, but I thought I'd give it a shot. 
Sasha's hometown is Korsen Shevchenkovsky. We went there in August. It's beautiful. Churches with gold onion domes, whitewashed houses with wooden shutters, old ladies selling fruit and vegetables from little stands. It kind of seems like a little fairy tale village. Eventually, we pull up to a white house with green trim. You see it, Jessica. Just showing up on a random Ukrainian doorstep made me pretty nervous. But Sasha's parents seemed to know exactly who I was. Yeah. Oh, hi. Oh, cool. Nice to meet you. My name is Anna. I'm Alexander's sister. Anna is about my age, blonde, wearing sweats and a t-shirt. She gets her brother on the phone. Hello, Sashenka. This Jessica. Do you remember who you wrote in Seattle? She's saying, Jessica, your pen pal from Seattle is here. Like here, at the house. He's in shock, completely. <laughs> Sasha's at work, so Anna takes us to a cafe where he can meet us on a break. He's been like a military guy for 10 years, then he changed his profession. Now he's working in agriculture for four years. Sasha, in the military? Agriculture? Not exactly the gentle, book-reading, music-playing, intellectual future I was imagining. And the huge guy with a shaved head who showed up is definitely a little tougher looking than I was expecting. Hi, I'm Jessica. Hey. It's great to meet you. I show him the letter. Look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turns out it's been a while since he practiced his English. Dear Jessica, <laughs> I've got your letter of, uh, of February... 25. Thank you very much for your photo. You look nice on it. <laughs> he stops for a second because he says his heart is pounding. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Watching Sasha read the letter, I was thinking about what memories it could be bringing back. For me, it was one letter that my teacher made me write. But for him and his family, it symbolizes a tumultuous time. About a year after Sasha wrote that letter to me, the Soviet Union fell apart. He was 13, I was 10, but we were just uh, looking at the year. TV and... The Soviet Union was in its death throes, but all they could find on TV was... The uh, Swan Lake Valley. And nothing else. And every channel, you were just uh, uh, pushing the buttons, and everywhere was Swan Lake. Sasha's family was happy the USSR was falling apart. They never liked the communists. When the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, the pen pal program ended too. But hard times were just beginning for Sasha. The country was in chaos as Sasha entered his teenage years. Gangsters and criminals practically took over. Sasha didn't have a lot of options. In the late 90s, he signed up for the military. He stayed in for 10 years. But then he got fed up with the corruption and violence there. He came home to work in the wheat fields. So what does a typical day look like? It's horrible. Uh, <laughs> Every day, Monday. <laughs> Every day is like Monday now, he says. Sasha didn't seem particularly happy to me. It seemed like he felt stuck in his job, stymied by corruption, broke, and back where he started. And his frustration echoed what we heard from other young Ukrainians. Soviet times are over, and so are the anarchic 90s, but for many, that hasn't translated to opportunity or prosperity. When Sasha and I said goodbye, he kissed my hand. I went in for an awkward hug. Even inside the unhappy ex-military Ukrainian dude I met, I could still see strains of a sweet letter-writing boy from 1990. 
Are there museums in your town? What do you do on Sundays? Tell me about your parents. Sincerely, Sasha. Driving back to Kiev, watching the onion domes of Sasha's town recede, I overheard my translator talking to the driver. He sounded angry, and he said, See, that's what our country does to young men. So that was how I first met Anna and Sasha or Alex. Anna and I have kept in touch through Facebook over the years. Now she's 42 and living in a town called Murfreesboro, Illinois. I spoke with her one week into the invasion. Seven days ago, our life changed completely. So I'm doing the same stuff. You know, you're getting up, you're getting ready, driving kid to school, <laughs> going to work, and all the time, watching, checking the messages, is everybody okay if they need anything else? What about your brother? Are you in touch with... Yeah, Alex is, uh, you know, Alex got the military background and stuff. And now a lot of people that not in active military, they still signing up for the self-defense organizations and stuff. And whenever I'm calling him, I cannot get in touch with him every day. But the only stuff he says, I'm on a project and that's enough. And it's like I'm living on the phone 24-7. I sleep a couple hours a day. And I can't, you know, I'm checking on the list. I'm calling parents, calling all my friends and stuff. Because they all over Ukraine. But I have a niece that it's like my kid. She's now in Ukraine. And uh, she's halfway pregnant already. And she's now staying in a bomb shelter. And as far as I can, you know, she writes me every day. The kid is 26 years old. And we've been waiting for this, you know, for this baby and stuff. And I want to go there with, you know, like it's happiness to have a kid and stuff. But now it's, she's under the stress. And, you know, every time I see my parents on the screen because I can FaceTime with them, I can see them. Some of the friends, they have barely, barely connection and stuff. They leave in just the messages and stuff that they are okay. But sitting in a bomb shelter for seven days, it's not okay. And when they're running out of supplies and there is no way to get out, you know, you've been in the house, you know, so they have a nice garden, they have food trees and stuff, and they put in the sirens because they're bombing. And they so already tired to live like this. And it's spring. In spring, all Ukraine go into the gardens, they plant in, they grow in something, they clean in their yards to look nice and pretty and enjoy so my dad is now shaping the trees, fruit trees and stuff. And my mom is calling him like, you need to go to the shelter. He's like, I don't have time for that anymore. I need to clean my garden. What is it like being a Ukrainian here? Like, you know, do you have a community of other Ukrainian people that you're going to... I'm the only one probably for 50 miles around. But Friday we are leaving to Chicago because a huge Ukrainian community is there. The embassy is there. It's a consul. It's not the embassy. but. <clears throat> And my daughter, who's she's already thirteen, and uh, but she still speaks Ukrainian. She respects both, you know. She wanna go there and feel this spirit. 
Ukrainians are really courage, you know, full of courage and stuff. And now it's like it's bad to say that, but it's a joke that Ukrainians kill COVID nineteen because we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, we kill the COVID nineteen really quickly. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? What do you really want people to know? I want people to know that we will fight for our freedom. Thank you. I'm um, really glad to see you and I'm grateful that you too. took your time to, to talk to me too. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Anna Perogova. We spoke on March 2nd, and since then, she tells me that she has lost two friends to the fighting. And of course, at this point, there have been thousands of deaths on both sides. The conflict is really wearing her down, she says. It's hard to know that her friends and family are in danger every day. But she and her daughter did make that trip to Chicago for the weekend. It's a long drive, like five hours each way. They didn't even have any specific plans. They just knew that they really needed to be in a place with other Ukrainian people and to feel that sense of connection and community. Well, thanks so much for bringing us that story, Jessica. After the break, we're headed to Moscow. Stay with us. You are listening to Generation Putin, the anti-Putin protest movement 10 years later on Making Contact. Making Contact is offered for free to radio stations around the world. Find out about this and other episodes by going to our website at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org. Welcome back. Today we're talking about Ukraine and Russia and following up with some of the folks Jessica Partnow met on a reporting project back in 2012. Jessica, what's next? So the other person I caught up with was Vasily Sonkin. Yeah, one sec. Who was my interpreter in Moscow back in 2012. So this is my wife's headphones. I usually use AirPods. So. And I think Vasily is a fascinating person because he kind of straddles the two worlds of American and Russian culture in a really interesting way. He told me once that he learned English from watching The Simpsons, and he is like 100% fluent in American pop culture references. But I still don't think he's ever visited the United States. I thought of him right away when the invasion started because I know it just must be so complicated to be in his position. He's in Moscow in this big international world-class city. He has access to all the same news and information that you and I do because he's tech savvy and he's a fluent English speaker. And then, of course, he's also getting all the information and disinformation that everyone in Russia is getting. You know, we're hearing a lot about stories that Ukraine is bombing itself and it's instigating violence. And we know that's a lot of the news that's circulating in Russia. And I just can't imagine how strange that would be. So we had a really interesting conversation, but I was thinking that first I would play a little bit of the story that Vasily and I worked on together back in 2012. Sounds good. So back in 2012, Vasily and I were actually covering the anti-Putin protest movement. So this is roughly 20 years out from the end of the Soviet Union. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. and in Russia were still in that end of history, democracy is the only possible way kind of mindset. We had all been fed this idea that after the fall of the USSR, 
democracy would prevail. And at least for me, it was like almost impossible to see another way that things could go. But at the end of 2011, Putin made his first super overt move and announced that he was running for president again. He had already had two terms at that point. So this third term really felt like it was not the intention of the newly democratic Russian constitution. And there were huge protests in Moscow. The biggest ones were in December 2011. But even almost a year later, when I was there, thousands of people were demonstrating. People were being arrested, but it was contained enough that thousands of people still felt safe enough to go out there and protest. So it was this really exciting and dynamic moment. And I think a lot of people really felt there might be a chance to stop Putin from becoming a dictator, you know, through the democratic process, through demonstrations and protests. And of course, we know now what really happened next. And Putin has been back in office now since 2012, and he actually recently extended term limits, so potentially he can remain in office until 2036 at this point. But I think that moment in 2011 and 2012 was really interesting, and I'd like to go back there for a few minutes before we catch up with the Vasily of today. This is basically this column is St. Petersburg against uh, Putin. This is Una, a 22-year-old protester from St. Petersburg. She says she's afraid of the direction Russia's going, and she's worried that the protest movement is too divided. She has two very different uh, ribbons on her head. One is nationalist, the other one is LGBT, and it's uh, her way of saying that we all should be together on this. The LGBT ribbon is rainbow-colored for gay rights. The nationalist ribbon is black and yellow, the colors of Russia under the monarchs. In addition to those, there are groups here from all over the political spectrum. Communists, nationalists, libertarians, feminists. We can hear a protester with a megaphone, Vasily interprets. She says, I welcome you to the March of the Millions. People who represent the leftist views, please gather on the left side of the boulevard. People who represent the right views, please gather on the right side of the boulevard. The thing about it is, ousting Putin is pretty much the only thing they agree on. The organizers are trying to separate the left from the right physically. They don't want anyone fighting. Some of the nationalist groups here are known for violence. So here we're passing another intersection and these intersections are so intense because there's metal barricades and then there's just like rows of police like three people deep or so. So that was almost 10 years ago. I think at the time we didn't really know for sure what would happen next. Um, But I wanted to know what Vasily thought about how things have changed since then. So I reached him in Moscow at the beginning of March. So you know like a hill? And like, and like you're at the top of a hill, and then you go down, mm-hmm. and that's the only way you can go. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yeah. Like literally, you were here the last time. Ever, anybody had any real optimism about changing anything? <laughs> mm-hmm. You kind of got a snapshot, <laughs> like the first and last time. Yeah. It was like one of the last times people had any hope that this was not forever, and this was not, this was a question of potential agency, not just a dire situation that needs to play itself out. 
My name is Vasily Sankin. I am uh, used to be a journalist, a producer, and a bunch of other things. My job, in a lot of cases, is to bring people into this country and show them what is good about it. I do my best, not because I'm told to by the government, not because I'm being paid by anybody to do this specific thing, but because I just want to share this awesome thing I saw. Because I can't, that country doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't. I mean, do you think it died eight days ago? Yes. It was, it was killed. It was killed. Just outright. Yeah. And I'm going to be careful with my words, uh, with what I say, just because, yeah, it's dangerous. I can't yeah. speak my mind freely. This is like, you know, me blinking it out for you. Like, I'm in this hostage situation and I can't speak all, I can't say all I want to. I think I'm curious to start just like with today. How are you? What was your day like today and what's going on in your world? Uh, it's uh, very surreal, the whole thing. It's just, it doesn't fit into your brain properly. And like the way that the internet allows you to see it from so many different angles and just hear others, other people's pain, for now it allows us to do that because I'm, I'm not sure how long we're going to have an internet. Or is it going to be an internal system? And that internal system, is it going to be government run? And if it's government run, you can't speak your mind on it, obviously. And it feels really strange to do, be sitting in 2022 in this modern city that's been going through these all these changes to upgrade and become hospitable and become like a tourist destination. But at the same time, also like getting state-of-the-art CCTV cameras. And as the city kind of developed, at the same time, like this modern surveillance state developed too and like it's also all integrated into the internet and then i'm assuming that this kind of war that's been going on externally is going to be internalized and all these systems are going to be turned up and used to kind of i don't know send us to gulags and stuff and like this is a reality that i feel very strongly and i actually haven't talked this through vocally until now. So it's kind of hitting me at the same time. <laughs> and so my day is just like, like all this is absolutely overwhelming. At the same time, you can't turn away. You have tools that allow you to continue to stay in this connection to other people's pain and like seeing all your friends leave and seeing all the companies in the world say that they're not going to be working with you, seeing your currency drop uh, knowing that the value of the money that you have on hand is uh, diminishing. And at the same time, that's not really a problem because I don't have any, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only thinking like, oh, cool, my debts are becoming less and less big because they're all in rubles. Hey. Awesome. <laughs> if I make 100 bucks, I'll be able to cover all of them in a year if there's a ruble to recover and cover it all. It's just I've never been so unsure of what's going to happen at this scale. How do you know you're getting good information? And I have to imagine that most Russians are not getting good information about what's happening. I follow a bunch of sources that I trust. They're getting rarer and rarer. And like several media outlets shut down mm -hmm. in the last three days. Wow. 
they were uh, uh, blocked, and now they are either pausing their operation or shutting down. And one of them was Echo Moscovy, which is a staple of the Russian liberal press. I got a VPN, I got a bunch of other like uh, connections, but I'm not sure if it's going to hold. A bunch of VPN services are being blocked. Big yeah. VPN services like adapt to that, and that's good, and I hope that they continue to. And I truly, from the bottom of my heart, ask them to please, please not leave us here if they can do anything about it mm. without a connection. Even if it's a trickle, even if it's slow, please, we need it. Everybody's thinking about leaving. Thinking about thinking about leaving. Yeah, my friend mm-hmm. Ira is sitting right next to me looking for tickets to get the hell out. Is that something you think about? I don't have any savings and I don't know where to go, but I do think about it because like if they make a draft, I'm not going to go fighting to Ukraine. Jesus. That's just no. no. <laughs> my plan is to volunteer for the organization that helps people that are arrested because I I can't go out to the streets because like my family needs my support. I just can't because we've been doing it for so long and it hasn't shown any results and like I know people are telling us to go out but it really is impossible to s- explain how programmed to be terrified of it we are at this point. And anybody who does go out, my respect is with them and I will support you and I will help you as a volunteer on the helpline. It has been so so valuable to get to hear from you about your reflections, your experience, your I mean there can't be that many people in the world who have as in-depth and knowledge and experience of both Russian and American culture as you. You're just thank you're you. So amazing. Thank you. That's really <laughs> nice to hear. Um, Hope I don't get smashed by the pieces of the crumbling reality around me and continue to be this kind of person. If anybody thinks that's valuable and maybe yeah. can help me get out, that's also something I am potentially open to. That's really, it's really good to know. Um, and I just so appreciate, I know it's a lot, it's your time. It's a lot of like mental and emotional energy. I was looking um, forward to this. I haven't been silent. I spoke. I used my voice. This is good. This is, this yeah. is helping. Yeah. I'm so glad. Thank you, Jess. And thank you for thinking of me. So that conversation was back on March 3rd, which turned out to be the day before Russia shut down access to Facebook and many other international websites. I have managed to be in touch with Vasily um, since then. His The technology he mentioned has been holding up so far. And he says it's really up and down. You know, some days are better than others. The day I most recently spoke with him, he was doing pretty well. Thank you so much, Jessica, for reconnecting with Anna and Vasily to bring us that update. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show for this week. If you'd like to listen to Generation Putin, the full hour that Jessica produced back in 2012, you can find a link on our website, radioproject.org. Generation Putin was reported by Jessica Partnow, Sarah Studeville, and Alex Stonehill, and presented by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, with support from the Open Society Foundations. This episode was written and produced by Jessica Partnow and co-produced by Jessica Partnow and Monica Lopez. The rest of the Making Contact team is Anita Johnson, Salima Hamurani, and Sabine Blazin. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Contact.